Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. The Viewpoint. Weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. Song is on on The Viewpoint. SAFM.
Viewpoint with Songs of Abed, the 25th of June. Good evening, fellow South Africans. Yeah, it's a very cold night here in Pretoria. That much I can say, and I understand it is pretty much the same there in Cape Town. Nonetheless, welcome to this, the Viewpoint on this, the 25th day of June 2019. It's Tuesday, a very cold Tuesday in Pretoria. Ting Ting by Mama Busim Klongo. Stay tuned. Bumper lineup head. For this evening, the state of state-owned entities, we're going to be having a conversation with Mr. Mbumela Lumkabela, who's at News24, political analyst and columnist. We are trying to get hold of Ms. Naledi Shirwa, the MP from the Economic Freedom Fighters, who made her maiden speech this evening. If you are listening and you are near her, please tell her to answer her phone. We're trying to get hold of her. We want to get a sense as to what it was like being in front of a couple of million people watching and some 400 members in Parliament hurling everything there was to be hurled on both sides of the divide, as it were. That's going to be coming up at the quarter to the hour. We cross our fingers that we are able to get through to her. Now, let Jira answer your phone. If you're next to her, tell her to answer her phone. Our producer, Lesejo, is trying to get hold of her. And then, in the new hour, the African narrative, the LGBTI people and the churches in Africa, Reverend Ebucho Glass, the other foundation, that's the name of the foundation, the other foundation, is... In that organization, the religious program officer there, as well as Reverend Dr. Ellen Busak, anti-partied leader, theologian and author, discussing the community of the LGBTI, its relationship with the church in Africa. So that's what lies ahead in this hour and 45 minutes that I am with you on here. So please stay tuned. We'll be back right after this break when we are joined by Mr. Mbumelelom Kabela from News24. Stay tuned. Watch EFC 80 this Saturday at Carnival City. Coaches Soldier Boy and Lazar fight for the middleweight title. And the two female reality show finalists battle it out live for a shot at EFC Gold. Plus, Conrad Siabi and Luke Michael finally settle their score. EFC 80, live this Saturday at Carnival City. Watch it on SABC 3 from 9.30 p.m. Brought to you by SABC Sport. Get in-depth information on stories making headlines. From your favorite Chivenda Speaking TV current affairs show, With a Twist, we cover issues of public interest. We are the voice of the voiceless. From politics, business, sport, and entertainment. Catch Zoma Ramani on Wednesdays at half past eight in the evening on SABC2. The SABC News Portal is your one-stop digital platform for all the news you need. Stay connected with the latest and breaking stories. Listen to all SABC radio stations live, including podcasts. And also watch the SABC News channel with clips and live streams of all the big news events. Simply download the SABC News app on your smartphone from the Play or App Store. SABC News, independent and impartial. SAFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Song is on on SAFM. This does not even need to be a scope of consideration. Um, it, Parliament must insist on this. The president and his executive must insist on this. Um, society, South Africans must insist on this. That first and foremost, we need to deploy to these SOEs people who are fit for purpose and qualified for the job that is required by the institutions. This reckless kind of cadet deployment that we have seen is in the main what has brought about the systematic collapse of governance 
um, in institutions. We have been to SAA Escopa and we recognize that one of the immediate challenges was the collapse of governance. Um, whether you go to SAPC, um, Transmet, Prasa, um, and so on. The, the fundamental issue is that people who are entrusted with responsibilities of making sure that these institutions are functional are simply not equal to the task. Secondly, has been the prevailing cancer of non-accountability and the failure to punish people when they do wrong. And because we have set that up as a norm, it has become very easy then for people to brush over their responsibilities and do as they please. And I want to say that um, I will make it a point that um, chief amongst the institutions and departments that we are going to call are some of these state-owned entities that have got legacy matches with Scopa, so we can bring those to a logical legal parliamentary conclusion, and they include SAPC, Transnet, ESCOM, and SAA. And also, we, we must really zoom into the issue of staff morale and the human resource management uh, practices at these SOEs. Staff members are simply worn out, drained, and tired because of the heavy hand of management on one hand, and secondly, on the other, the demand for staff to do things which are wrong. And then when it comes to consequences, it is staff that take fall and the top dogs survive. And that kind of approach um, is paralyzing SOEs and rendering them inefficient because you've got workers and staff which are just afraid to go to work. And when they get to work, they are afraid to do the job. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Those are the views of the incoming Scopa chairperson, Mr. Kabela. It's quite a sobering reminder of just how much work there is to do in this. Mr. Kabela, are you um, there? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, now we can, yes, sir. Yes, yeah, well, I mean, he has said a mouthful, and I think uh, he is 100% uh, uh, correct about the difficulties that uh, our SOEs have uh, have encountered over the years. It seems to me that uh, one of the things that he has not articulated is that we need to actually review the the model of SOEs by asking the question, why in the first place do we need them? And uh, is it possible that we can do without them? And to answer the question, we have to look at the... The, the four, or should I say three ways, three different ownership methods that you find in an economy. One, you find um, uh, uh, you find services and or products that are provided for only by state, only by the state via different methods. It can be a government department, it can be a state-owned company, uh, company. And secondly, you find services and products that can be provided for by a private sector entity, but acting entirely on behalf of the state. It's contracted by the state. Mm -hmm. Then you find the third method whereby um, the private sector is exclusively responsible, but the government regulates uh, those private sector entities. But those private sector entities are actually uh, have got full entitlement in terms of uh, property rights. So we Mm -hmm. have to look at at the time when all of these entities were established, what was the rationale? And do we still have that rationale in existence now? 
or has the rationale changed? If the, if it has changed, have we changed the method uh, uh, in which they operate to suit the new rationale? So, so if you if you ask that question in that, in that format, you will realize that there are some of the SOEs which would best serve if they were to be partially privatized. Some of them you don't privatize them. You just outsource their running to the private sector, but they are entirely owned by the state because you recognize that the private sector might have the, the technical capacity to run them, but they don't own them. It's still uh, the state that owns them. So, But you can do better service if they are run by the pr- pr- private sure. sector on behalf of the state. So those are the things we need to look at uh, uh, in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in this uh, uh, period where we are struggling with this enterprise. And it's very clear from the part of government that Government is struggling with the competence to manage them. All right. Just a brief heads up. We're in conversation with Mr. Mpumelelo Mkabela of News24. He's a political analyst and columnist there. We're discussing the health of state-owned entities, playing that clip that we had in conversation last night with Mkula Gotlengo of the IFE, the new Scopa chairperson. If you want to contribute to this discussion, and I think you must, 89 Sorry, zero eight nine one one zero four two zero nine. Oh eight nine one one oh four two oh nine. What's up voice notes? Oh six one four one oh four one oh seven. This is hashtag SFM viewpoint at SAFM radio with myself, your host for tonight. Song as a Mr. Mkabela, let's talk about first of all the rationale. What would have been the initial rationale for South Africa to establish SOEs before we get into whether or not that rationale is still worthy of its price on paper, if you will? What was the initial rationale for SOEs in South Africa? Well, we can't exhaust all of them because there are so many. But let's uh, just take, uh, for practical purposes, so for illustration purposes, let's take uh, ESCOM. ESCOM was established in the 1920s by the government of uh, Jan Smart. And the reason why ESCOM was established at the time is that South Africa uh, wanted um, to industrialize. And the government, Jan Smart as the prime minister at the time, recognized that uh, there was no one uh, in his own government who could actually do that kind of work. So he actually called a gentleman by the name of Hendrik van der Beel, after whom van der Beel Park was named. He called a guy called uh, Hendrik van der Beel, who was a, a top uh, a, a scientist teaching in the U.S. And he came back home and said to him, look, we are struggling. Our economy has got very expensive uh, electricity tariffs, and all of which are provided by the private sector. Is it possible that we can have a state-owned entity that provides electricity to households and to industry at a cheaper price, given the fact that South Africa has got an abundance of coal? So the gentleman then said, fine, we can do that, provided you give me complete independence on how I'm going to model this thing, and provided you give me all the support to do it. And then they had a deal. Then the guy set up a, 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 a ESCOM. Um, and then in setting up ESCOM, they had to actually nationalize an existing private entity that was providing electricity at a very high, high price. And then he amalgamated that one and another one, two of them, and brought them together. And he said to the government, you must invest money here, and this is how we're going to do the project. That's how uh, ESCOM started. And in the beginning, as a result of that initiative, the prices for electricity dropped by more than 50%, while at the same time, ESCOM employed more people. In, in, in about 10 years, the, the, the staff uh, complement of ESCOM uh, more than doubled. And at the time, uh, it had both black and white. So 
black people. So that's how ESCOM evolved. And as a result of that, South Africa industrialized on the back of cheap electricity. And most of the industries that uh, propped up then, they relied on this uh, electricity. So that's how uh, ESCOM evolved. The question is, how did it happen that over time, the very same SOE is now almost in reverse? So what is happening before we now get is them, that... Before we get them, Bumelelo, let's yes. work from the thesis that you have established. And I would imagine it, it, it applies to all SOEs in the broader sense. Stability, affordability assurance of some basic services with some generation of income for the state and in also doing that you allow private sector and citizens the space to express themselves in a manner that's going to create some economic stimulation i mean that's what any soe should then be able to unlock in terms of the potential that lies there and also access increasing access for those that the private sector would typically or otherwise Ex, um, exclude. That can go for the SABC because, for instance, SAB competes to an extent with your pay channels, multi-choice. But SABC and your other free-to-air is there to afford that sort of access. And it's also to communicate certain messages. You can talk about just about any SOE. It does, to that extent of rationale, mirror that which would have informed the establishment of ESCOM. Now, the question is, are we even asking the right question if we're now going back to say, is the rationale even then now as it might have been then because these questions wouldn't exist if these entities were well run is that not the question as to why have we allowed these entities to be run to the ground by incompetence that's what Uklengwa was saying in that clip well when we ask that question we are seeking first of all to establish whether some of them they would have to have their rationale uh, changed because circumstances have changed uh, over time in some instances, the, the, the answer might actually be, no, we don't want to change the rationale. The rationale is still valid as it, as it was back then, like in the case of ESCOM. But not everyone who runs ESCOM, from the management point of view, to the board point of view, until to the uh, political level, or even uh, at the executive level, or parliament at an oversight level, not everyone over the years has understood the rationale. So... Sometimes we make a mistake of assuming that everybody understands, everyone gets it, so it's obvious. It's not always obvious. And people get into these positions where they supervise these SOEs or they run these SOEs or they are suppliers to the SOEs of certain services and products, but they don't understand the rationale, which is why somebody gets on the board of this entity and he starts maneuvering to get his friends uh, to get tenders. He starts maneuvering to get his friends to get um, uh, deals in a, in a very corrupt manner. Because, first of all, they don't understand why this entity was established. So they think that it's there for their own pocket. So even when the rationale is not going to be changed, but we still, have to, we still have to discuss it. Do we all understand what the rationale is all about? I, I think then in that case, we are, we are finding common ground in that discussing the rationale and making sure that the rationale is understood doesn't in itself invalidate the existence of the rationale, but rather calling into question the kind of individual who is going to be tasked to deliver on the basis of this of this rationale. In other words, again, the kind of employer or empl- the kind of employee who's going to be employed in these SOEs, the kind of leadership that is going to deliver this mandate on behalf of government through the vehicle that is the SOE. Isn't that the question? The kind of cadre deployment that is necessary to the extent that it has to happen politically. But more than that, and even better, drawing from private sector 
to deliver on a government mandate. What's so difficult about that? Well, you are right. It's not just the, not, it's not a question of just the individuals who, who are called upon to run these entities or become employees. We also have to look at the, uh, the system. So it's possible that we can stay with the same rationale, but we might want to review the system under which they operate to suit present circumstances. So there's this thing in political science called political decay. When, uh, when things evolve to the point where the present rules are, uh, become obsolete, they become irrelevant. So the yes. rules are overtaken uh, by development. So we have to look at having our system or our legislative framework uh, become uh, have a decade over time. Uh, you know, in relation to what actually needs to be done. So we have to review the whole thing, and we have to do a case-by-case thing. So the problem in South Africa right now is that we treat SAA and ESCOM in the same way, uh, for example, we treat, say, for example, rainwater. And we treat you know, Denel the same way we would treat, um, you know, uh, another state entity. And it doesn't have to be that way. We have to be very calculative and rational about it and set up systems that operate differently to suit mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. different sector. May I quickly interject there, please? When you talk about the assessing the rationale and whether or not they're still located given the circumstances that pertain now as to what might have been the case all those many years ago when these institutions were established, is the answer to that question, as you've just posited, does it not lie in the NDP? Because this is government's policy document that outlines not only where we are, but also the vision by which these institutions, these resources, this manpower that is available to the government today is going to take us there in 2030. Is the NDP not the answer to that? Well, in the main, I mean, the NDP's uh, view on the uh, SOEs, if I may uh, summarize, uh, summarize brutally, is that... yes. First of all, it says we need to have a capable state. So if we have to take into account the fact that the state consists, among others, of state-owned entities, so it means these entities should be capable and uh, efficient in the way they do business. The second issue is that it says that the SOEs must support growth and uh, uh, by ensuring that you know there's low cost in doing business in South Africa, they generate um, uh, income themselves and they must be self-sustainable and that kind of thing. So... The NTP does have uh, answers, but the NTP doesn't have an implementation uh, a blueprint. So you'll find a, a blueprint of implementation in the form of laws and regulations. So all of these entities were established by Act of Parliament. So we have to look at uh, whether those uh, Act of Parliament that, uh, that establish all these entities are still giving these entities the kind of role that we envisage. There's also other laws that uh, state entities have to comply with, which are not only specific to state-owned ent- entities. They're also applicable in the private sector. For example, the Companies uh, Act. Um, um, so you have to look at this thing and say, okay, on a case-by-case uh, basis, is this a, a specific regime that we can design for SAA, for SAA to suit a particular rationale? If we don't want to privatize SAA, for example, uh, because we think it's a strategic asset we want it for to enhance our ter- tourism there's also the question of pride and all of that then we should say let, let, let let's look at the model that saa is operating under and maybe ask the question we don't want to privatize this we want to keep it 100 percent owned by the government but shouldn't we perhaps appoint competent uh, operator to operate it on our behalf 
The margins between victory and defeat have become razor thin in the Premier League. It has been proven in the recently concluded 2018-2019 season, with champions Manchester City and runners-up Liverpool FC separated by just a single point. The Premier League Golden Boot has not one, not two, but three winners this season, who all finished on 22 goals. Liverpool's Mohamed Salah. Oh, Salah's there and scores beautifully. He will never walk alone. Sadio Mane of the Reds. Sadio Mane! Liverpool. And Arsenal, Gunners of London's Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And Aubameyang takes full advantage. He cannot stop scoring. Manchester City, Liverpool, Chelsea and Tottenham Hotspur all secured a spot for next season's UEFA Champions League. While Brighton and Southampton survived relegation. The Premier League, brought to you by SABC Sports for the love of the game. Stuck at work and cannot watch the Cricket World Cup? Don't despair. SABC3 brings you a delayed broadcast of all the Protea fixtures. This week, watch Sri Lanka versus South Africa on Friday the 28th of June at 7.30pm. And next week, on Saturday the 6th of July, Australia versus South Africa at 11.30pm. ICC Cricket World Cup, only on SABC3. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. on The Viewpoint. And in conversation with Mr. Mbumilan Makabela of News24 political analyst and columnist talking about the health and status of SOEs. From Kailicha, we have our first caller for this evening who wants to have something to say. Good evening, Zola. Hello, Mr. Yes, Excellent. I just want to ask you, you know, analysis. I got Zimbabwe, I got Ghana, and then I got South Africa. All of those countries get a freedom. It's more than 20 years, all of these countries. You must give me an example of any country that creates employment after the democracy. Because if you check Ghana, you've got a lot of people here. They're looking for jobs in South Africa and Zimbabwe also. And the, I see the South Africa also going Give me an example of a country here in Africa that after they got the democracy, we got and we create an employment. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Zola from Kailita. Do you want to respond to that, Mr. Mkabel? <laughs> well, it's a very interesting question, but look. Uh, the reality is that uh, uh, of what he's referring to is the fact that uh, uh, post-independence, many uh, African countries uh, disappointed. Uh, in fact, it's not even about democracy, because most of them, after independence, they became dictators. Uh, they became dictatorships. Uh, they didn't immediately adopt uh, a democratic uh, approach. Remember that even with Ghana and Nkrumah, it slowly became a, a dictatorship. And uh, so did uh, many other countries. A democratic project, uh, in its essence, as in like constitutional democracy or parliamentary democracy, if you like, is virtually. Um, I would mm. say what we should actually be evaluating is the comparison between the time Africa was. I'm going to ask you to have to just um, 
fix your line there because I'm really struggling now to hear you. You're breaking up and that was, you were coming up nicely with it. Mr. Mkabela there from News24. Can we just please um, sort that out in the meantime, please, to the production team. But just to onboard everybody else who's just joined this conversation, it's 20.36, 24 minutes um, before the top of the hour. We're in conversation with Mbumelelo Mkabela of News24, basically really unpacking whether or not it is even necessary for us to maintain the existence of certain state-owned state-owned entities and he was unpacking the historical reasons why for instance escom was there we've had some calls unfortunately we were not able to go through to one of our callers in pretoria madome baduzola did come through from kailicha offering us a comparative analysis where you are right now do give us a call what are your views on state-owned entities we've even had a top official within government Tito Mbowena asking if whether or not South Africa needs these state-owned enterprises. The DA is pretty clear. Get rid of them because they are just a cash cow for those who are corrupt. The ANC, well, for most parts, it's not really committing itself. And to the extent that it is, it is maintaining the status quo. And which is worse, it is bailing them out. I mean, 50 billion rand in the last year has been allocated to SAA, Danil and ESCOM. That's real money. South Africa can ill afford to do that. What are your thoughts? What are your views? Please give us a call. Shout out to some of the listeners who are confirming that they are listening and specifically looking forward to the second hour. Gom Quiddles, who thanks her dad, Rev Dez, for confirming that this is the tweet. I've just heard that my brother and theological icon Alan Busak will be on SAFM radio talking LGBTIQ issues within the next hour. Please listen. These are matters of faith. They certainly are. With pleasure, Dada Dez. So, yeah, that's in the second hour talking about LGBT. TQI issues, but in this particular moment, we've got another 10 or so minutes, we're having a conversation with the health of state-owned entities. Peter Melder earlier on this evening, um, or this afternoon, said that we should look to retrench. We want to assess whether or not these SOEs are just bloated spaces whereby patronage and kleptocracy is fed. What are your thoughts and views on that? Because this is going to lead us into the second hour or last 15 minutes of the show, where we then have a conversation as it pertains to what you make of this conversation that is currently taking place in Parliament, that is the debate of the State of the Nation Address. And I understand Mr. Mkabela is back. You want to continue with your response, please? Yes, Owen, we were talking about his question about why, which African country has created jobs after democracy. So I was saying yes. this question is interesting, but it's slightly uh, misplaced in a sense that after independence, most African countries became dictatorships. And uh, they later transformed uh, into uh, democracies. And in fact, not all of them have since transformed into democracies. So what we should do is to compare the period when uh, African countries were dictators and, and the period when they uh, began to democratize. I would say that uh, the period under democratic rule is much better than the period under dictatorship for those that have made the transition. Interesting comments. Zola, if you are there, give us a call back. I'd like to hear your response on that. Mr. Mkabela, let's talk about now. Let me play this clip first by Peter Mulder before I ask this question about retrenchments taking place. Here's a clip from Peter Mulder earlier on this afternoon. You know, and everybody in South Africa know, when it comes to the SOEs in South Africa, you have to retrench people. But the unions come to you and the ANC and says, you will not do that. And that is part of the problem. You will have to curb their powers. You will have to revise labor laws in South Africa. I beg your pardon, that was not Peter Mulder. That was clearly the leader of the Freds Front Plus, Meneer Peter Groenewald, the layer van the Fiafia Plus. What do you make of that? What do you make of the fact that even the state's broadcaster might be retrenching? 
You see, there's a there's a there's a problem in in South Africa that people, when they talk about the job creation and retrenchment or companies struggling to operate, the first thing that they think about is the retrenchment. Yes, there may be instances where cutting down the workforce is the viable option, but there may be instances where actually it's not a viable option. So you must first you must first find out what is the cause of the trouble and diagnose the problem and then dilute and dilute it uh, uh, thereon. In many instances, it's a question of people hired for wrong reasons, where else you need a particular skill, but you hire the wrong skill. Uh, and in some cases, it's a question of productivity. You've hired the right people, but you don't have the right uh, managers to get productivity out of the people that you've hired. In other words, you're not getting value for your money. So in some instances, it's a question of the company is just going through the bad patch, it's not getting the right uh, clients, it's not getting the right revenue. You still value all the employees, and none of them are irrelevant in the business. But for cash flow purposes, you decide to cut down staff because you've got nowhere else to cut. So this idea that you can have a blanket approach of retrenchment as a solution, I don't think it's, a, it's the right approach. Yes, Togozani Duma. Good evening, Mr. Mkabela and Mr. Mabek. M-A-B-E, Sigi Togozani, please. I think SOEs would have thrived if they were not captured by politicians, which is similar to municipalities where you find politicians dictating terms on who must be hired and who must get a tender. The administration is a toothless watchdog. That's not an unfair remark, is it? Well, it's not an unfair remark, but the caller forgets that SOEs are a product of politicians. So SOEs are a product of politics. But it's politicians who saw the need to establish them to fulfill a particular role. We discussed earlier about the rationale. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so the question is... But Fander Bell, of- sorry, but Fander Bell himself was not a politician. He was in the U.S. working. And he came here and he specifically demanded if he is to establish this political structure or pursuant to this political instruction, he must be given the space and latitude to do what is required. And what is required, of course, is just to simply do it as a private sector institution would do things. So Utokozani is correct in that sense. This hijacking of politicians, of the administration, of municipalities, of SOEs, is wrong because that is not a political platform. That is not a political space. It has to be profitable. Yeah, well, from that point of view, you are correct. The question is, once the politician has taken a, a decision that we need an entity to fulfill a particular public purpose, the question is, what kind of uh, instrument or legislation is designed to give that uh, effect in such a way that it does not become the extended pocket of the politician, but it fulfills a truly public mandate? So in South Africa, we have had a situation where not everyone understands the rationale. Not everyone understands why the SOEs were created in the manner that they were created. And people come in and they think that uh, these assets are their extended pocket. Yeah. Um, we could have a long discussion about that. Let me just talk about the fact that from a business perspective, why have other countries or other massive multinational corporations not cottoned on to what is currently taking place, especially in the SOE space in this country. All these government bailouts, in another context, in a business, in a pure business context, these are companies that are becoming insolvent. And as we have seen from time to time with business rescues, certain companies buy that debt. And in this case, that debt would be bought against the security of a bailout from the government. 
and then these companies take over that debt, pay it off using financial prudence in that regard, and then in the long term reap the benefits of having accessed a space which at least is secure in that Worst case scenario, they can always call up that debt in the government bailout. For instance, China has done this very well. They've taken over a port now in in Sri Lanka because of exactly this. Why is this not something which is attractive to other corporations outside the country or other countries who are so inclined? It's a very controversial uh, proposal you are making. In fact, uh, I'm not making a proposal. I'm asking why is it not attractive (laughs) enough that it be done from a business perspective because whilst it may be something which is practically done, I'm certainly not proposing that that be done because in many other respects that could be us relinquishing our sovereignty. So I wouldn't dare go that route. Yeah, well, yeah, that's precisely why it can't be done. In fact, in the United States, the U.S. government even has a new law uh, on uh, uh, that protects uh, American companies from outside investors who may have access to... Uh, the U.S. Uh, security system. And that law uh, under Trump is being applied uh, even in, in instances where clearly there's no security issue, but it's a question of protecting American companies. Uh, uh, that uh, Some of them are private. Some of them are actually state-owned companies. So there's a controversy about the role of, of, of government, uh, how what governments do in relation to international investors. But one of the things that we need to look at in South Africa talking about the access that we, we can give to other or international uh, companies. Before you actually even engage uh, uh, outside companies, you must first set the tone in, in South Africa and say, look, this is how we operate in South Africa. We don't tolerate corruption. Because what happens is that if you have private sector partners coming from elsewhere, they adapt according to what you uh, uh, imposed in that country. So they color themselves around what you tolerate. If you tolerate corruption, they're going to adjust to corruption. In fact, they'll even give you perfect methods to be perfectly corrupt. <laughs> hold so that example, thought, hold that's why that we've thought. had companies like Bain coming to advise us, and we know what they've done on Tom Wayne. They've had Kings companies like thing. McKinsey, American mm. company, mm. doing mm. work at ESCOM. We know what they've done. We've had German uh, software company Transnet. Sahara uh, Computers. Yeah, we know so, but if we were not uh, giving them space to do this kind of corruption that they've done in combination with, with our people, sure. they would have actually been the opposite. Accepted. No. Let's take Madome from Pretoria who's calling us in for this final caller on this matter. Madome. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. Yes, I've listened to your speakers. Good interactions. Uh, well, my view is that uh, well, the SOEs are very much important to the growth of this country. If we are serious about growing our country, and if we take our people serious, especially the youth who are still coming up. <clears throat> and then the biggest problem that we have with the SEs, the way I see it, is that uh, we inherited them, of course, from uh, the apartheid government. But then what I see, the African National Congress, since it took power from '94, they never had a plan on how to manage the SOEs themselves and for what benefit, for what cause. How is it, is the SOEs going to benefit the people of South Africa? They don't know how and what to do. So that is the biggest challenge that we have. <clears throat> that is why now you have one man who's 
destroying everything in this country. Every day that he's still in power, the man called uh, Minister, or Minister Pravin Gura. So that is, I think that is the biggest stumbling block that he has. Matome, thank you so much for calling us from Pretoria. Final comments and thoughts from you, Mr. Mkabela. Well, my final thoughts is that what we need in our SOE space uh, is that we need to change the, our thinking. Uh, you need from uh, the higher levels of government a higher sense of patriotism over individualism and selfish interest and corruption. And then secondly, you need the higher sense of ethics um, over other considerations. And then, based on these values, build the technical capacities. Because what we, what we have in some of these SOEs, by the way, are highly capable people, but they lack the patriotism, uh, 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 they lack the ethics. So they don't have, they've got the hardware in terms of skill, but they don't have the software in terms of values. So that's why you have got the chief financial officer of this SOE. Trust these people are highly qualified, chartered accountant, appearing at the Zondo Commission, telling us uh, why they could not stop corruption because they feared someone at the top. This speaks to the question of people who have got skilled, highly educated MBAs, channel accountants, everything, but they lack the patriotism, they lack the ethics. So you need, you need these ethical values at the level of, of operation, at the leadership level, top level, at the political level, executive, that is uh, cabinet, and also at the parliament, which is oversight level. All right. We'll have to continue this conversation. Thank you so much for your thoughts, Mr. Mbumelelo Mkabela, News24's political analyst and columnist.